On October 25, 1974, Carl Higdon was on his way to the job site to meet up with his work crew in rural Wyoming. To his surprise, every single man of his crew that day was sick and unable to work. Carl did as he would do anytime he had free time in hunting season and grabbed his 7mm mag rifle and headed out towards McCarty Canyon in his pickup truck. On his way into the canyon, Carl stopped to attempt to help some hunters who seemed to be broken down on the side of the road. Sure enough, their truck had stalled, and it wasn't able to start back up. So Carl rolled up his sleeves and got to helping the men with their troubles. As time went on, the men all began to talk about hunting, and soon Carl's plans of heading into McCarty Canyon changed to where the men recommended in Medicine Bow National Forest. The men were pretty convincing, and the decision was easy to make. So Carl parked his truck on top of a knoll in the National Forest and sat in his truck while drinking his last cup of coffee for the morning. Soon after he took his first sip, the local game warden parked just behind him and began sparking a conversation. The men once again did what men do in elk hunting season in Wyoming and began discussing their previous hunts over a cup of coffee. It was decided from Carl's point of view on top of that knoll that he would carry on down the hill and try his luck not too far from the bottom. Shortly after Carl had stepped off the road and into the tree line, he was shocked to see that he was fairly close to five full-grown elk, one of which was a huge bull. So Carl raised his rifle, placed a crosshair on the broadside shoulder of the large male, and pulled the trigger. To his surprise, the gun made no noise when he fired, and then he watched as the bullet left the barrel of the 7mm in what was perceived as slow motion. The bullet stopped about seven feet out and dropped to the forest floor. This was instantly unnerving to Carl, as a 7mm travels at over 3,600 feet per second. Things began to get even stranger as he looked at the group of elk and realized that none of them had moved an inch. As if that weren't enough, now the entire forest was both silent and frozen in place. No leaves falling, no birds chirping, and no wind against the small amount of bare skin on his face and wrists. Everything sat still as he walked over to his bullet's jacket laying on the ground and picked it up before placing it into his canteen pouch. He stood there in awe as he began to really think about what might be actually going on. He took almost ten steps in the direction of the elk and none of them even moved at all. Just then, the hair on the back of his neck stood up and he turned around to find that he was no longer alone. A man was just yards behind him and looked like no man Carl had ever seen before. Whoever this man was, he was about six feet tall. He had hair that Carl described as both straw-colored and straw-textured. Two strands of which were a little thicker than the rest and stood straight up on top of his forehead like television antennas. His skin was yellow, and he seemed not to have a chin as his face seemed to be in line with his neck. He was wearing an all-black skin-tight suit with black boots and a belt with a yellow six-pointed star on the buckle. As the man walked bow-legged towards Carl, he asked, Are you hungry? In which Carl surprisingly replied, a little, and as if they had acted before Carl had begun his reply, a packet of pills flew over and the strange yellow man told Carl to take one of his pleasing. The yellow man explained that these were four-day nutrition pills and that they should keep him satisfied hunger-wise for an extended period of time. At this point, Carl recognizes that he is responding to this stranger not under his own will as he reaches up, grabs a pill, and swallows it without hesitation. The event continues on its path of strangeness as the yellow stranger asks Carl if he was interested in going with him. And yet again, without any reason or willingness to do so, Carl replied, might as well. Welcome back. 
to infinite rabbit hole. Welcome back to the Infinite Rabbit Hole Podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Jeremy, and today we're going over the Carl Higdon abduction story from 1974. This is a strange one, guys. This is a good one, though. This is strange but good, (laughs) if you will. I loved researching this one. The Carl Higdon story is a classic. Now, there are a lot of people that will call BS on this one. There are a lot of people. And I will admit that I have bounced back and forth myself on this one. But if you listen to the entire thing, I'll talk about it a little bit more at the end. But this one might have some basis in reality. I know, I know. Trust me. If anybody has heard the Carl Higdon story, you're saying right now, this guy's lost his mind. But hang tight. Strap in. We're going to travel 163,000 light miles to a planet that's way too bright for us. I know, I know. It's a little confusing, but we'll get into it. I promise you. Yeah, I don't know what a light mile is either. Anyways, I don't want to hold you guys up any longer. We're going to jump right in. Welcome back, everybody. Enjoy. The yellow man points a pointed appendage coming from where one of his hands should have been towards an area behind them, and the next thing that Carl knows, he was inside of a large glass cube seated securely in what he only describes as a bucket seat of sorts, with his arm strapped down and something in which he cannot identify on top of his head. Carl tries to move from his seat a few times without any luck. He is stuck staring at a particular section of the cube, and the only thing he has to look at are three levers that the being uses to navigate the cube. He did so by only pointing the pointed appendage at the levers without actually touching them. In the top corner of the glass cube, towards the top of his field of view, Carl can clearly see the five elk in the cube with him, locked up in some sort of cage. The poor things aren't moving. He was very surprised that they were able to fit in the cube with him and the yellow man because from what Carl could see, the cube was only about 7 feet wide by 7 feet tall to his best estimate. The yellow man is standing in front of him as they hover over the location of his truck. The man once again points his arm with a little pointy appendage and Carl's truck vanishes as they pass over the knoll. The next thing that Carl remembers is a large blue ball with a floating texture like a marble hovering below the cubicle contraption. He has stated that in his initial belief, this was Earth, but he quickly decided that it was not. In a split second, everything goes black immediately followed by the brightest light that Carl had ever seen in his life. The light was so bright that his eyes began to tear. And as the light began to dissipate, he began to notice that the source was an illuminated tower standing roughly 90 feet tall with a rotating light at the top with five people at the base who seemingly were just conversing among themselves. Waiting a few seconds would bring the bright light back and his eyes would begin to tear up and burn again. A sound which seemed to be coming from the tower reminded him of an electric razor. The people looked as if they were relaxed and at peace with where they were. There was an older man that Carl thought looked like he was in his mid-40s, 
a brown-haired girl who looked 10, another girl with blonde hair of about the age of 13, an older teenage boy with brown hair, and another older teen, this one a female with blonde hair. Soon after the glass cube comes to a stop, the yellow man, and another of his kind, guides him out of the glass craft and into a large room. After a brief wait, he is guided to a platform that he is told to stand on, and a glass contraption comes out of the wall and begins moving around his body as if it were studying him. The strange men then tell Carl that he is not what they were looking for, and that they will be taking him back soon. Carl would later state that it is his belief that they were interested in a breeding program with humans and denied him due to his vasectomy. They weren't lying. As almost immediately after this brief conversation, the original yellow man from the woods is escorting him back to the glass cube. As they exited the building, the light which seemed to not only be coming from the tower, but also from the actual sky began to burn his eyes once again. When the light fades and the two men are the only ones in the cube, they begin to conversate while this man from another world holds and studies Carl's rifle. The man tells Carl that he would love to keep the primitive weapon but it was against the rules for him to take anything from Earth or its inhabitants other than the food they needed. The yellow man with a strange face and the wiry hair is named Ozo One, and he explains to Carl that they have been coming to Earth for many years to gather fish and other animals for food and breeding. He describes how they process the animals into pills that last their bodies for up to four days on their planet. This is his specific job, and he is what Carl would call a hunter. Ozzo continues by telling Carl that the ocean on his planet is yellow, and all the fish have died long ago. So they have to resort to traveling the 163,000 light miles to Earth. The two men of separate places in space continue to talk until they arrive just above the forest in a location that was completely unfamiliar to Carl. Before he was dropped off, a few more bits of information were shared about Ozzo and his planet, including how it was one of nine planets in their solar system and how its civilization uses the magnetic power of the solar system to create electrical power on its planet, and how they have skin that is extremely sensitive to the Earth's sun, so they wear a specific black fabric that protects them while they are here. When Ozzo and Carl were done talking, Carl was sent floating down to the ground on the side of a hill. The ride down was smooth, but the landing was another story. As Carl's feet touched down on a large rock, he lost balance and fell over, hurting his shoulder, neck, and head. At this point, Carl is disoriented by either something dealing with the experience with Ozzo or the fall, or both. He groggily walks down the hill to a road and stumbles a ways before coming upon a pickup truck that he does not recognize as his. So he walks past it until he sees a sign reading, North Boundary Lincoln Forest. And due to being unfamiliar with the specific area, he decides to turn around and take shelter in the truck until he feels better or confident in what to do next. Confused and scared, Carl climbs into the driver's seat and begins trying to make sense of the situation. As his senses begin to tune back in, he begins to hear voices that he eventually recognizes as coming from a two-way radio in the truck. The woman on the other end repeatedly asks Carl who he was and where he was. Carl's only replies for the first few minutes of his contact with an unknown voice was, I don't, I don't know, to both questions over and over again. As he is looking around at his surroundings, he begins to make sense out of the sign that his truck was parked somewhat close to, and reads it to the voice in the radio, North Boundary Lincoln Forest. The problem then hit him. He didn't know where that was. The last thing that he was sure of was beginning a hunting trip in Medicine Bow National Forest. 
The voice came over the radio once again and told Carl to look in the glove box for papers and to look for the name of whoever's truck he was in. Here is when Carl fell into a haze and began mumbling the words, quote, I don't know. I'm so cold. My elk. The man in black and blue ball. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply the voice on the two-way. It was about 6.30 p.m. when Marjorie Higdon received a phone call from Bud Rosaker, a friend of Carl's who asked if he was around. Marjorie reluctantly replied that he wasn't home and that she wasn't 100% sure where he was at the moment. Immediately after she hung up with Bud, the phone rang again. This time, it was Andy Anderson, Carl's direct boss, who also asked where Carl was. He followed up the request by saying that there was someone in his company truck that they feared was in some sort of trouble and they needed to know where he had gone hunting that day. Unfortunately, Marjorie was uncertain where he had gone. She just knew that he had taken off hunting in the morning. Mr. Anderson didn't want to upset Marjorie, but he made a comment that they were concerned that the man in the truck was Carl and that the company had talked with the sheriff's office already. The sheriff reported that Carl had a conversation with the game warden that morning in Medicine Bow National Park, but his truck was no longer parked where he was last seen. The conversation with Marjorie and the lack of communication with who they assumed was Carl was enough for the sheriff to put together a search party for Carl that consisted of experienced hunters with four-wheel drive trucks. Marjorie, who was clearly upset at this point, reached out to her friend Marilyn and her husband Don to ask for a ride to Medicine Bow where the sheriff was going to begin the search. Don and Marilyn headed over to the Higdon household and grabbed Marjorie and the three headed out to the search party. As the three entered the park, Don picked up his CB radio and requested positioning so that he could get out to where the search was. Multiple men replied that they were in really tough terrain and that they recommended not coming out their way as they have had to repeatedly pull each other out of the mud and ravines and that they had no way to backtrack for Don, Marilyn, and Marjorie if they were to get stuck too. Don called back a few times for updates, with the last update coming as the sun went down. The men had still not made it to where they believed the company truck to be and had reported back to Don that they would radio back when they had reached the area. At this point, Mr. Anderson was keeping intermittent communication with Carl, and that was enough to keep Marjorie's hopes up about the events. As the night aged, Marjorie, Marilyn, and Don began noticing a new issue. Sleep. The long hours spent in the truck waiting for news to come proved to be exhausting, and the trio decided that it was best to try and sleep for the night. Marjorie found this difficult as her mind continued to worry about her husband and his whereabouts. At roughly midnight, Marjorie began feeling the truck begin to rock back and forward. She yelled out to the couple in front to stop what she assumed they were doing. Marjorie began getting upset when her request was ignored, and she looked up and was surprised to see that Marilyn and Don were fast asleep. But as she was about to make her new concerns known, she noticed an extremely bright light in the sky through the windshield. Look at that star! It's moving and changing colors and doing crazy things. Don, without opening his eyes, told her to go back to sleep. 
Before she could try to get her friends to witness the light, the CB radio came to life. We have Carl, but we are going out a different way. Meet us at the south gate. Without hesitation, Don fired up the truck and the trio took off for the new rendezvous where they would wait for Carl. Marjorie was beginning to feel much better that her husband was found alive. As the search team came through the gate, Marjorie leaped out of the truck and immediately went to where Carl was sitting. Carl stared into space and had zero expression on his face, even when the woman that he was married to was standing right next to him. Well, did you get your elk? Marjorie asked. Carl turned to face her, but never lost the expression in his eye that made him look like he was looking into infinity. They took my elk. They, they took my elk. Marjorie was concerned as she noticed that her husband was shivering. She took her jacket off and attempted to drape her warmth around his shoulders. Don't touch me! Marjorie stepped back in shock and began to tear up. Don, come here. Don ran over and asked Marjorie what she needed. Don, I need you to take his rifle from him. Something is wrong and I don't want him to hurt himself or someone else. Don approached with caution and unclipped the shoulder harness and slipped the rifle out from behind Carl and slid it out with caution. Carl continued whispering, They took my elk. They took my elk. The decision was soon made due to Carl's condition at the time to take him to the hospital. Don took Marjorie by the shoulders and walked her back to his truck, helping her get in and followed the small caravan to the Carbon County Memorial Hospital as they were heading out of the park. The group of trucks ran into Carl's big boss, Roy Fleming, who had made the trip from Riverton, about three hours away, to provide any assistance he could in the matter. Carl's friend, Bud Rosaker, was the man driving the truck with Carl as he approached Roy's car on the side of the road. He slowed down. Roy asked Bud if he wanted to lay Carl down in the backseat of his car instead of sitting up in Bud's truck. The men agreed to make the transition, and as the door was beginning to open to assist Carl over to the other car, Carl took off screaming, The lights! Oh, God, the lights! He covered his eyes with his hands and continued to run toward the ravine on the side of the road, all while screaming at the top of his lungs. Marjorie made the connection that the headlights of all the trucks may be upsetting him, and she yelled for everyone to turn off their lights. She made the right call. After all the headlights were shut down, Carl lowered his hands and walked over to Roy's car, slammed the back door shut, opened the passenger side door, sat down, and closed the door behind him. With Carl now riding shotgun with Roy Fleming, the line of cars and trucks began to ride to the hospital once again. This is where Roy Fleming became the first person to ever hear Carl's wild story about Ozzo 1 and the trip across space to an unknown planet. To this day, Roy has only come forward with confirmations of information that Carl has put out to others, but Roy claims to know of further points of the story that have never been talked about outside of the car ride. When asked, Carl admits that he doesn't remember this ride or what was said. When they walk into the emergency room at the Carbon County Memorial Hospital, the party begins to see that Carl isn't in the best shape. His eyes are watering profusely, and he is babying his shoulder, and Carl keeps repeatedly asking for a pill of food. The doctor on duty that night, who was assigned to Carl Higdon, was a newer doctor in town by the name of Dr. Tonko. In the medical records noted that night, there are many mentions of the seemingly random and far-out things that Carl was talking about throughout the visit. The 163,000 light mile journey, cone hands, yellow skin alien with a black suit, how everything disappeared as they waved, and how everybody and everything floated in their glass cube and on their planet to name a few. 
a symptom notated in his records stated that he was showing symptoms of an amnesic state and that when asked what his name was, the answer that was given was, quote, Well, they keep calling me Carl. Who is Carl? After a full and thorough inspection of the injuries claimed by Carl, he was found that he had no bruising and no fractured bones in or around his shoulder. A toxicology report from a drug test that was administered showed that there were no drugs in the system, and even though he was giving a towel to keep over his eyes, Carl never stopped complaining about the lights. He never recognized his wife that night of 17 years, and it was the doctor's recommendation that he stay for observation for a few days. Before Marjorie had left for the night, she gave Carl a pencil and a piece of paper and asked him to write or draw anything that he could remember. Carl drew a crude picture of the being and wrote the word Ender and continued to draw a road with a fork in it. Soon after, Marjorie had left her husband and began once again on her housely chores. Something fell out of one of the pockets from Carl's canteen pouch as she was putting it away. To her, it just looked like a piece of damaged metal. So she placed it on the bureau and went to bed. The days that followed. In the morning, Marjorie decided to head down to the sheriff's office to discuss the night before. She grabbed the metal chunk because she thought that there was an outside chance that it may be evidence of some sorts. When she arrived at the sheriff's office, the sheriff was not in yet, so she had a chat with the deputy about the previous night. Eventually, the piece of metal was presented and the deputy was shocked to say that it was a bullet's copper jacket, but it looked as if it were pulled inside out. The deputy walked the jacket into another room where a few people looked at it, and when he came back, he notified Marjorie that it was in fact a 7mm mag jacket. When Marjorie asked him how it could have ended up that way, he replied, quote, It was a strange night. Just leave it alone. Sort of shocked at the deputy's reply, she reluctantly showed him the paper that Carl had drawn and written. She asked the deputy if he was aware of anything to do with the word Enders. He replied that there was someone with the name Enders also in the forest that day at a completely separate location, and again followed that up with, don't question it, just leave it alone. Soon after the visit to the sheriff's station, Marjorie headed back to the hospital with their daughter Rose to visit Carl. He was doing much better than he was last night and was cleared to head home by the staff on duty. Shortly after the family got home, the phone rang and Carl was surprised to hear the voice of Sue Taylor, a reporter for the Daily Times newspaper out of Rollins. She was calling to request an interview with the man who was rescued from the woods after a lengthy search party was executed. Carl was quick to correct her as he told her over the phone about the crazy adventure that he had gone on with Ozo 1 to a planet over 163,000 light miles away and back. The next day, his story was plastered all over the front page of the Daily Times, and the world was now being introduced to the story of Carl Higdon and Ozo 1. Carl attempted to get his life back on track, but it proved to be harder than anyone could have thought. Carl refused to drive anywhere and began walking to any place he wanted to go. He started to seriously doubt himself and often told Marjorie that he believed he was dreaming the whole thing up. He had trouble staying asleep at night and would awaken at various times. He became scared. He stopped going to work and he needed help. Soon after the article was published in the paper, Carl was put in contact with a Dr. Leo Sprinkle, a psychologist from the University of Wyoming in Laramie, who was very interested in the UFO experiences. 
Dr. Sprinkle offered to make the trip to Rollins to save the Higdon family from the long car ride. The man was pleasant and very polite when he arrived at the Higdon household. The men sat at the dining room table and Marjorie poured them both a cup of coffee. Dr. Sprinkle wasted no time as he explained that he was interested in studying Carl and his case in order to attempt to try to put the pieces back together to build a clearer story of what actually happened. He asked Carl if he had any reservations about being hypnotized and if he would mind being recorded as he was under hypnosis. Carl agreed. He was extremely interested in finding out what really happened because he was exhausted from constantly second-guessing himself. The doctor pulled out the tape recorder and began capturing the conversation between the two men as he explained the process of hypnosis. Everything was going great at first. Carl fell into hypnosis successfully and began answering questions about the early portions of the day. The story that was laid out was exactly the same as the one I highlighted in the first portion of this presentation, but when they arrived at the bright light, Carl's eyes began to water and squint. His eyes would remain like that for the rest of the first hypnosis session. Another hiccup in the story occurred as Carl was explaining being floated back down to the solid ground from the flying glass cube and falling once he slept on the rock. This made Carl physically cringe and cry out in pain. When Carl came out, the men shared another cup of coffee and Dr. Sprinkle left the Higdon house. But before he traveled back to Laramie, Dr. Sprinkle stopped at the sheriff's office and the hospital to gather any other information that he could about the case. During every stop, he asked if they were familiar with Carl before the event, and those that were told the doctor that he was a very honorable and honest man, and if the story had come from anyone else, it would be a hell of a lot harder to believe. On November 2nd, Dr. Sprinkle reached back out to Carl and asked him for yet another session, but this time he would be bringing a colleague along, a Mr. Rick Kenyon, an art teacher from Rollins. Carl happily agreed to another session and even told the doc that he had begun remembering other details of the night. During the second session of hypnosis, Carl described the other humans that were at Ozzo's home planet and how they seemed to be at peace with where they were. He described how they had monitored him with some sort of device before telling him that he was not what they were looking for and that they were going to bring him back to where they had found him. The artist, Rick Kenyon, used specific descriptions to make his interpretation of how Ozzo 1 looked. He was roughly 6 feet tall, he had no chin, bowed legs, no ears, yellow jaundice-like skin, two arms with no hands, one of which ended with absolutely nothing, and one that ended with a cone-like appendage. He is dressed in an all-black outfit that reminds him of what a scuba diver would wear. When the sketch was done, Carl was very impressed with how close the artist was able to get to how Ozzo actually looked. Before the session was completely done, the men discussed having Carl come to the University of Wyoming and Laramie campus so that Dr. Sprinkle could administer a few tests that he could not easily bring in his car. Carl agreed and shortly after the session headed up to the campus and underwent a few tests, one of which was focused on his mental health. The results? Carl Higdon showed no signs of having any mental illness. This led to Dr. Sprinkle diving even further into Carl and his story and resulted in many sessions that eventually led to the story that we all know today. Around this same time frame, Dr. J. Allen Hynek of APRO, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, attempted to debunk Carl's story. But according to Carl's wife's Marjorie, Hynek only succeeded in giving the story more validity. The Drive One late afternoon, Carl was lounging in the living room and Marjorie was doing the dishes when Carl yelled out to her asking, Hey, want to go for a ride? Marjorie dropped what she was doing and threw on her jacket and was more than happy to get out of the house, since it seemed to be a rare event since the incident. 
Their son Mike was home at the time and Marjorie asked if he would like to go as well. Mike agreed and the three of them jumped in the truck and Carl began driving south. Marjorie is unsure where it was exactly where Carl was heading to at this point, but after heading south for quite a while, Carl began going west on an old dirt road. Eventually, they drove up a hill and Carl shut off the engine. Right before the three of them, a large green light shaped like a cone hung in the sky and the area was filled with a horrid stench of sulfur. Once again seeming out of it, Carl said, I'm late. I was supposed to be here a few minutes earlier. Carl grew angry and slammed his fist on top of the steering wheel and yelled out, I must be crazy, why am I here? If we had just been here on time, that would have happened to us. Marjorie never learned what it was that could have happened if they were on time, and Carl never elaborated on his comments. But several nights later, another incident occurred. Carl was sleeping in their bed next to Marjorie when he began speaking to her. Put your hand on me, said Carl. I know it's weird. I am in bed with you, yet I am south of town. They are telling me, look at the black box. They are taking wild game. It is like they want me to know that they can contact me at any time. What is wrong with me? When the episode passed, Carl sprung on the bed and phoned Dr. Sprinkle right then, in the middle of the night. Carl and Dr. Sprinkle would conduct many hypnotic sessions with similar events throughout the years, and every time the pain in his shoulder would come back stronger than the last. One of such events was the constant following of lights in the distance whenever Carl would travel. It didn't matter how far it was, they would be there when he went to the grocery store, when he went to work, everywhere. A few of his workers even came forward a few times and claimed to have seen the lights on many occasions. Some people in town became aware of it as well. The science teacher at the local high school requested permission to take his class out to the Higdon house to meet the guy who was being chased by a strange phenomenon that nobody seemed to be able to understand. Soon, Carl was receiving calls from all around the world, from places such as the jacket and the lid. One mystery that seemed to always bother Carl was the mangled bullet jacket from when he fired his rifle at the elk on that fateful day. Eventually, Carl was able to get a rather large party of friends and family to head down to the location that he claimed to have met also one. And this time, he would bring a metal detector to try to track down the lead that should have come out of the jacket when he fired the bullet. Many things were found by the party, such as burnt leaves and limbs of trees, and what seemed to be carvings on many of the trunks but they seemed to be older than the event in question and nobody had any idea what the carvings were trying to portray. But one thing that was never found during the expedition was the lead. Now beyond the bullet, there are many aspects of the story that are eye-opening. The location where the truck was eventually found in the forest is now famously known as the muck hole due to the way the truck was sunk into the ground. This place does exist for a pickup truck to get all the way out to where they found Carl would have been impossible due to the brush and trees that were growing in the area. And with that, there really was a search that took place looking for Carl. The records from the sheriff's station and the reports in local newspapers documented all very well. And the people who discovered Carl's truck unanimously claimed that there was absolutely no way for his two-wheel drive truck to get out to where it was. They claimed it was impossible and that it wouldn't have made it more than 200 yards into the forest from the closest access road. Another unanimous detail, not only between the searchers but also by Marjorie, Don, and Marilyn while they were waiting in Don's truck, is that there were a lot of strange lights in the sky that night. Marjorie even explains that at one point, at just about 1am, she was able to see 
so well that, quote, she could have picked a dime off the road due to what she could only describe as a light almost as bright and big as the sun was illuminating the area. Carl really did go to the hospital that night, and records from the hospital prove not only that he was there, but he was also showing signs of an amnesic state while he was in the building. One of the most commonly disbelieved details of the story is the lights that were said to have followed Carl after the event. This is also documented in newspapers and other documents in Rollins, Wyoming. Unfortunately, I could not find any photos, nor could I find any evidence that any exist. Many doctors have records of their own evaluations of Carl. Some apparently proved his quote-unquote deception, and most agreed that the man did in fact go through something extremely traumatizing. Many different TV shows, magazines, newspapers, news channels, and podcasts have covered this story and before his death from COVID in January 26, 2022, he appeared in many of these coverages of his story as a willing participant for documented interviews. Finding a platform to see him tell his story with your own eyes and ears is not a difficult task. One of the most famous coverages of the Carl Higdon story was on the incredibly famous show amongst Fordians, In Search Of. The television show covered Carl's abduction in their season 3 season premiere. The most recent and popular coverage of this fantastic story is by David Polides in his 2022 release of Missing 411, The UFO Connection. We've talked about the missing 401 pretty often in the early days of this podcast, and the story has been looked at as a possible answer to some of the cases involving the missing 401 phenomenon. Could Carl Higdon have nearly missed being another tally on the list of missing people in the national park system throughout the U.S.? The source that I used for my research for this episode was a book by the title of Alien Abduction of the Wyoming Hunter by none other than Carl's wife Marjorie Higdon. To be completely honest, this was a very difficult read as Marjorie was not a writing major. But the story got across and the pieces fell into place. Personally, I think this is why you get so many interpretations of the story. Yes, this again is one of those stories where you can go to many different sources for information and get varying differences of details from each source. I specifically chose to only report what happened in this amazing event from the text of Marjorie's book because I'm a huge fan of using the sources that fall closest to the original source as possible. While we are on the topic of this book, I think it is also important to mention a few of the other claims that some either don't have incredible evidence for or seem so far-fetched that it is extremely difficult to believe to be true. One such piece of information is that Carl had tuberculosis as a child and his lungs were scarred horribly by the infection. But after the abduction, his lungs were perfect with no sign of the TB ever rampaging through his body. Same goes for kidney stones that seemingly disappeared after the event. Now. Medical records do show that Carl did have tuberculosis and was actively suffering from kidney stones. And they did seem to go away. And that that is definitely a mystery from this story. The Invisible Wall. Now before we end this episode, I think it is important to apply some physics to one particular event to help clear up what may have happened to help lend some believability. I want to explain how the 7mm bullet could have acted in the way it did under the influence of a strong magnetic field. Now, the bullet leaving the rifle slowed down at a pace that it seemed like it was going through an invincible wall of jello before falling down to the ground, and the rifle had what Carl perceived as zero recoil, 
What I want to explain is how a non-magnetic metal that passes through a magnetic field will have its forward projection decreased greatly. The non-magnetic metal, of course, being the bullet. Now, magnetic fields have what are referred to as flux lines that come off of one pole of the magnet and connect back into the other pole of the magnet and create what looks like rings around the magnet on all sides. This is accompanied by what are called eddy currents that flow perpendicular to the flux lines and create a field of invincible resistance to non-metallic metals flowing through the space. Google an image and the picture I am trying to paint will be very obvious. Basically, when the bullet shot out of the rifle, it seemed that it was hit into an eddy current field and a resisting force was pushing against the bullet's projected path. This would also hold true of the rifle and its recoil, by the way. But where would the magnetic field have come from, you ask? Well, if you look into UFO and abduction reports, one thing that constantly pops up are strange phenomena that can only be caused by magnetic fields. This cube that Ozzo was transporting Carl in was supposedly right behind where they were standing. This cube could have very well used a form of magnetic manipulation to perform flight, all of which would have made this particular event within the story very believable. The Carl Higdon abduction event is one that may seem very unbelievable on the surface, but I can't seem to let go of the possibility of this man actually experiencing something truly out of this world. The book that was written by Marjorie Higdon was a tough read, and it seemed like she may have tripped over her own facts a few times. Some of the claims that she put forward were very tough to consider as real, but a few things to remember is that she was not the main protagonist in the story. She did not go through the experience that Carl claims to have, and therefore, the only thing she can report on is what she saw from the outside looking in. What I can say is that through my research, I saw many interviews that she was a part of in some way or fashion, and what I saw was a woman who cared deeply for her husband and father of her four children. This family went through a lot of turmoil when it came to the disbelievers, and she did her best to relieve her husband of what she felt like she could. But by doing so, I do believe that there were aspects of her side of the story that may have been stretched in some way, therefore making it more difficult for them. But does that mean that I don't think that this event took place? No, not at all. I honestly think that Carl did go through something. Was it an alien abduction? Uh, I, I don't know, maybe. But I can say that he for sure shows signs of being absolutely sincere and forthcoming about details that people wanted answers to. There is a ton of evidence that back up his claims from the time after the abduction took place. And by all means, the man was in rough shape. With all that being said, there is one other thing that I would like to point out. As we dive deeper into many other abduction stories in later episodes, you will notice similarities between the story and others. Although many of them are slight, the similarities are there, and these cases span from before and after Carl's experience. One particular case that we've already covered is the story of Andrew Cold, in which he was also described as having a yellowish kind of skin, something reminding Woody Derenberger of an oriental skin. So that's it, everyone. That is the story of the Wyoming hunter named Carl Higdon, who went missing for hours before showing up alone in his truck in the middle of the night in an area of a national park that was completely inaccessible to his vehicle. And until next time, travelers, my name is Jeremy, and it has been an honor to have you join me in this path of the infinite rabbit hole. Goodbye.
I would like to thank you once again for tuning in to the Infinite Rabbit Hole Podcast. Please make sure to give us a follow and one of those beautiful five-star ratings on your podcast player of choice. If you would like to join the conversation and stay up to date on all things Infinite Rabbit Hole, head on over to Facebook and search for the Infinite Rabbit Hole Facebook group. You'll know it's us when you see the logo. If you would like to help contribute to the cause, there are a few ways to do so. First, head on over to anchor.fm forward slash infinite rabbit hole and click on the subscribe button where for $5 a month you'll get access to all our old episodes that will never see the free spotlight ever again. It's horrible stuff, but if you're into that kind of thing, then go check it out. Second, head on over to infiniterabbithole.com and click on the IRH merch shop tab and grab yourself a sweet t-shirt, sticker, or whatever else you see that you wouldn't mind owning. Until next time, travelers, I'm Jeremy, and I'll see you at the next fork in the path of the Infinite Rabbit Hole. Bye.